0: All right, well thanks very much for coming along in the sort of dog days of the summer summertime. Um, I'd much rather be outside, and I'm sure probably you would as well, so. Um, right, so to the topics of morality and law of war, and I'm going to focus specifically on permissible conduct in war, um, the principle of non-combatant immunity, which confines belligerents to targeting only military objectives, and the legal equality of combatants, which grants soldiers the same permissions and holds them to the same prohibitions, irrespective of the justice or injustice of their cause. Um, I've got a little handout there, it's more a summary, it's not particularly condensed, um, but it gives you some of the gist of some of the things I'm saying because the argument's quite dense. Um, so it will help you out as you go along, to keep track of where we are. Couple <coughs> of coming in. So I'll we'll just do a little bit of terminology. Um, soldiers who side satisfied, you say bellum, or justified resorts. I'm going to call J combatants. Those whose side did not satisfy Bell and I'm going to call you combatants. The reason I don't call them just or unjust combatants is because that implies that we can determine whether they're just or unjust from the side that they're on. And one of my major points is that I don't think that's the case. So I'm just using that as a placeholder to identify which side the combatants are on because that's important for developing the structure of the argument. Now, the dominant figure in late 20th century just war theory, Michael Walzer, argued that all combatants enjoy equal equal permissions to target one another grounded in the threat that they pose to each other's life. In virtue of that threat, U-combatants and J-combatants alike lose their rights against lethal attack, so they're not wronged when their adversaries kill them. By contrast, non-combatants, unthreatening by definition, retain those same rights and so are not permissible targets. Non combatant immunity and combatant equality, then, are grounded in a single argument. One may permissibly target only those who have lost their rights against lethal attack. All combatants have lost that right, whereas all non combatants retain it. Now, Walter's position developed into something of a, an orthodoxy, which was bolstered by its consonance with in international law. But in recent years, many philosophers have become increasingly dissatisfied with it. In particular, These revisionist critics have discredited his account of how one loses the right to life, showing its inconsistency with other plausible beliefs about permissible harming. Against Walzer, they argue that the morality of harming is almost always asymmetrical. A person who defends himself against unjustified attack doesn't become liable to be harmed by his attacker simply by now posing a threat. To become liable to be killed, the threat one poses must be unjustified. Moreover, posing an unjustified threat is neither necessary nor sufficient for liability. For example, a politician who sends a U-combatant to fight an unjustified war might reasonably be thought liable despite not posing any threats himself, whereas a child soldier out of his mind on drugs and with a gun to his head might not be liable despite posing a threat. Whilst his critics have concluded that what matters for liability is three things, one responsibility for two contributing to threats of three unjustified harms. So those are the three components that go together to make up liability. And the critics apply these in various different ways, various different combinations. Um, and in doing so, they face criticism from two different angles. So these are the critics of what's the revisionists have face these two different objections. On the one hand, people have argued that the liability view would be too restrictive. That it would be impossible to fight any wars if we were confined to targeting only the liable because we simply cannot know enough about our adversaries and our weapons are not sufficiently discriminating to pick out the liable from the non-liable. If we were permitted to fight only morally pure wars that involve no intentional violation of rights, then we would in practice not be permitted to fight. This is why I call this the contingent pacifist objection because it conceives that in in theory, there might be a way of fighting justified war but in practice this is never going to occur. So as a matter of contingent fact, we ought to be pacifists. From the other side, Critics have challenged that the liability view can be too permissive, allowing combatants to intentionally target liable non-combatants, and that's because posing a threat isn't necessary for liability, so simply in virtue of their responsibility, (coughs) non-combatants might become liable to attack. Now in other work, um, I've argued that these two objections are fundamentally connected, that as the revisionists lower the bar for liability in response to the contingent pacifist objection. And um, to render all the combatants who are going to kill liable to be killed, they render themselves more vulnerable to the second objection about non-combatant immunity, right? Because if you lower the bar for liability to ensure that all combatants are going to be liable, you then find that many more non-combatants are going to be liable as well. But if you raise it, so that non-combatants aren't going to be liable, you return yourself to the problem that not all the combatants are going to be liable, um, and you can't disc- discriminate between them. So the contingent pacifist objection and the non-combatant immunity objection uh, form a sort of dilemma. For the, for the revisionists. Now one way that they respond to these two objections is by invoking the distinction between the morality and the law of war. They argue that these two objections might be good reasons not to implement their view in the laws of war, but that they don't undermine their account of war's underlying morality. So what I'm going to do in this paper <coughs> is first to summarize the most fully developed of this version of this argument, and then I'm going to criticize it, and then I'm going to ask what, I, what the relationship between war's law and its morality should be. So I call this move the Appeal to Law, um, and in this section um, I'm going to talk about what the Appeal to Law does, how it works for the revision to you. It's quite a simple idea, um, people often act wrongfully. Sometimes they choose to do so, other times they do so by mistake or accident, for example because they lack important information. This predictable wrongdoing shouldn't alter our moral reasons, but it might be relevant to choosing our laws. Um, just to say, that the most prominent version of this view is um, espoused by Jeff McMahon, and I'm doing a sort of redux of his, of his arguments towards it. Uh, it's, also been, it's also been mentioned in passing by several other revisionists, people like Cecil and Helen Froh, and Tom Herker deploys it, Tony Cody deploys it at one point. Uh, so it's a fairly common point of reference for them, without often being fully developed. So this version by Jeff is kind of the, um, the only real attempt to, it, to really put some meat on the bones. So that's what I'm kind of working from. Um, so, in the context of war, we have two causes of predictable non compliance that are particularly troubling. Um, first, there is the lack of important information um, that combatants in face. Um, in particular, whether their side satisfied of Bellum, um, whether this particular operation in which they're engaged is, is necessary, whether it's proportionately conducive to their aims, and whether their targets are liable to be killed. These are all very complex and urgent questions. Whose answers will depend on ambiguous, often unavailable information. So there's a serious epistemic shortfall. Second, we have the issue of voluntary non compliance, voluntary wrongdoing. Now, obviously, war presupposes some voluntary wrongdoing, because that's kind of what starts them in the first place. Um, but that aside, we know that um, whatever rules or principles we establish for one side will likely be arrogated to themselves by the other side. So if we, if we grant the J combatants a certain set of permissions, you combatants will take those permissions and act on them as well. They're not going to voluntarily adhere to a more restrictive set of rules. Uh, and we just know that this is, this is the way people will behave. So it's this predictable wrongdoing. Now, revisionists deny that this predictable non-compliance is relevant to the morality of war. They argue that the epistemic shortfall might make acting morally difficult, but that's nothing new, and doing the right thing is often hard. If we ought to act given full information, then we ought to act even when our information is incomplete, though we might be excused for failing to do so. Similarly, that others will abuse our principles is no argument against them as principles. Um, but these are both appropriate worries, they argue, when we're devising what the law should be. If people will routinely disregard a law, or if it makes demands that can't possibly be achieved, then it will be regarded as irrelevant or unfair or unrealistic. And it will lose its capacity to guide action. So, if we think the law has any purpose, then we should encourage it to have. Uh, we should we should frame the laws so that they take these elements of predictable non-compliance into account. And so, on this basis, revisionists argue that morality and law should come apart. Though combatant equality and non-combatant immunity lack substantial foundations in moral principle, then they might be justified as laws. Um, combatant equality, because if we had asymmetrical laws of war, so laws of war which gave permissions to the J-, J combatants, which they denied to the U combatants, and these laws would be unworkable because of uncertainty over who's on the just side uh, and the question over who is liable to be killed, they would render it impossible to enforce. And any permissions that we grant to the just side, the J combatants, would be abused by the U combatants as well, either because they believe themselves to be justified or simply unscrupulously. Um, So since we know that any asymmetrical laws would have those um, those negative effects, we have to introduce combatant equality. So there's a legal justification for it, even if there's not a moral justification. And the same sort of argument goes for justifying non-combatant immunity. Um, Even if it's true, morally speaking, that non-combatants can sometimes be liable to be killed, a law that enshrined this permission for J-combatants would inevitably be abused by U-combatants as well as being abused by J-combatants in other circumstances when they shouldn't take advantage of it. So we need to have a blanket prohibition on targeting non-combatants to forestall this sort of abuse. Um, So this means that we can answer the contingent pacifist and the non-combatant community objections in this way. We can say, yes, these are salient practical concerns. It, It would be difficult to implement the revisionist liability view. But these pragmatic concerns shouldn't alter what our fundamental moral reasons are in war. The fact that a principle is abused or hard to follow doesn't make it false. Uh, but they are relevant to the laws of war, and the laws of war should be designed so as to take them into account. So in practice, soldiers and states don't have to worry about being paralysed by the injunction to kill only the liable. The fact of the epistemic difficulties that i talked about, the predictable voluntary non-compliance, these mean that we have to retain combatant equality. So soldiers have a legal right to kill even non-liable J combatants. Okay, so they don't need to worry about adhering to the liability view in practice because it's too complex and it will be abused anyway, so all they need to do is follow the laws of war which grant them combatant equality. The same sort of argument goes for non-combatant immunity. Um, we don't need to worry that non-combatants are going to be especially vulnerable if we endorse the revisionist liability view because in practice the laws of war will enforce um, a strict prohibition on targeting non-combatants, even liable ones. Um, which is grounded in these sort of pragmatic concerns. So even though there's no fundamental moral grounding for non combatant community um, at the level of moral principle, at a level of law it can be justified. Okay, so that's the appeal to law. Uh, And now I'm going to turn to critique. This is section three, why should we obey the laws of war? Now, this appeal to law can ameliorate the implausible practical implications of the liability view only alongside an account of when and why soldiers should obey the law if it conflicts with their moral reasons. Okay, if, there's, if, they, if they have no such account, if soldiers simply ought to do what they have most moral reason to do, then what the laws say is going to be irrelevant. Right? On the other hand, if um, soldiers simply ought to do what the law tells them to do, then one could reasonably argue that all the stuff about the morality of war is irrelevant. Right? So let's forget. stop talking about the morality of war doesn't affect practice. Doesn't affect. It's not action guiding. We should just focus on the laws of war. So there's a real kind of tension and dilemma here to find this way of retaining the significance of the morality of law of war, whilst at the same time giving the appeal to law some purchase by showing that legal reasons can sometimes override moral reasons. Um, now again, despite the popularity of this theoretical move, there's sadly very little material on this question. Uh, again, Jeff is the person who's sort of developed it furthest. Um, So any any version of this appeal to law is going to have to tell us when and why our legal reasons can override our moral reasons, when we ought to obey the law rather than what morality tells us, and why that should be the case. So Jeff argues that on the question of when, uh, we should distinguish between moral and legal permissions, prohibitions and requirements, positive requirements. Um, and his argument is that moral requirements and prohibitions should trump legal prohibitions and permissions, <coughs> but that legal prohibitions will trump moral permissions. He doesn't say a lot about clashes between legal requirements and moral permissions and prohibitions. Now I'll come to the implications of that in a second. Uh, on the question of why, he breaks two arguments for a duty to obey the law of armed conflict. The first is that combatants should be reluctant to give their individual judgment priority over the law. The law has been designed in part precisely to obviate the need for resort to individual moral judgment in conditions that are highly unconducive to rational reflection. The second argues for a pro tanto duty to obey the law grounded in the fact that disobedience will lead to further breaches by others. So I'm going to look at the when and the why in turn. And so, my first thought on the when question is that this ordering of reasons renders the appeal to law ineffectual as a response to the contingent pacifist objection, though it might work for the non combatant immunity objection. So if moral prohibitions trump legal permissions, then the prohibition on killing the non-liable trumps the legal permission to kill enemy combatants. The soldiers shouldn't kill unless they know their targets to be liable. Since they often can't know this, they ought not to fight, and we end up being pacifists in practice. So that's if moral prohibitions trump legal permissions, which is um, what most, says they do, and it seems <coughs> like the only plausible position there. Now it might be better matched, the appeal to law, with the non-combatant immunity objection. Uh, but this is going to depend on whether soldiers are morally permitted or required to kill liable non-combatants. Uh, and again, Maman argued that moral requirements override legal reasons, but the moral permissions can be overridden by legal, legal prohibition. So if I were permitted to kill a non-liable non-combatant, uh, to kill a liable non-combatant, um, then If it were prohibited by the law, I ought not to do it on this account. And whereas if I'm required to do it, then my moral requirement can override the legal prohibition. So a lot hangs on whether soldiers in war are required to do the killing they do, or whether they're merely committed um, from the perspective of morality. Now I think that combatants are often going to be morally required to kill in war, because they're going to have strong positive reasons for action, grounded in natural, contractual, and role-based duties to protect their co-citizens, their comrades and their country. If I'm right, then this moral requirement would trump the legal prohibition. And so again, the practical implications of the revisionist liability view um, would be untouched by by the appeal to law. But let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, more charitably, that J-combatants were merely permitted, not required, to kill liable U. non-combatants, so non-combatants on the side that lack justification and resort to war. If the EU non-combatants are liable to be killed, then they support the side J combatants must have a very powerful interest in killing them. It must be to save their own lives, to save the lives of their comrades, or to otherwise advance their justified aims. So this brings us now to the why question, because if the appeal to law is going to work against the non-combatant immunity objection, we're going to need a compelling argument for a very strong duty to obey the law, even at such great cost. You have to think about how many duties there are, that can be imposed on people that we think people will face, which require them to sacrifice their own lives. Um, advocates of the liability viewer more often will have been rather sceptical about the notion of duties that require that degree of sacrifice. Um, and you've got to remember as well that it's a duty to obey the law at the cost of one's own life, even when um, killing the liable non-combatant, in this case, is, as hypothesized, permissible because he's liable. Right, so you are being denied a morally permissible option to save your own life, Sacrificing your life because of your duty to obey the law. So there's a very, very heavy burden of proof here. We need some really powerful arguments to explain why it is that we ought to obey the law in such a circumstance. Now, the two arguments that Mamado advanced the first one is this idea of um, the law providing protected reasons, what Joseph Rouse calls protected reasons. These are reasons to not consider other reasons. Right? So we should obey the law because. If we obey the law um, without considering a to our own individual judgment, then in the long run we'll actually find that we better adhere to the reasons that apply to us. And, and that doesn't seem a plausible argument at all in this case, firstly because it's explicit that the law diverges from our moral reasons. So it's somewhat counterintuitive kind of to say then that even <coughs> though the law diverges from our moral reasons, it will better enable us to adhere to them. It's not completely impossible, it's not contradictory, but it's certainly somewhat of a tension. But the, the real problem here is that this sort of argument for protected reasons can only work if it's exceptionless. Uh, if the law always, if we should always obey the law without regard to our specific individual judgments in the individual case, then that's fine. But if there are some exceptions, some acknowledged exceptions to this, when we ought to appeal <coughs> to our other reasons and they do override our duty to obey the law, then we have to examine every case to see whether it is one of these exceptions. So this means that in every case we are appealing to our own individual judgment. So the purpose of having the the protected reasons argument to obviate the appeal to individual judgment, that's defeated because we have to see in each case whether this is one of the exceptions. So that argument is a non-starter essentially. Um, The second one I think is going to be stronger than the first. This is a different structure of argument. Instead of saying the law gives us reasons not to obey, or reasons not to regard, or to think, th- think through our other reasons, it says we have a specific reason to, to obey the law itself. The um, uh, idea of a proton, or so a duty to obey the law. which is very familiar from the literature on political obligation in, in political theory. Um, now, the argument is essentially that disobeying the law in any given instance, even if it's justified, will lead to further disobedience by others, um, which will be unjustified. Okay, so that's the, the basic notion. And Again, it's quite a familiar argument against civil disobedience, for example. Um, unfortunately, the argument is importantly incomplete. It's in, first, it's incomplete in the sense that this isn't going to provide, for example, for um, respect for non combatant immunity in circumstances where there won't be any such consequences. Right? So if, you, if you're going to kill a non-combatant and nobody's going to know about it, or if it's not going to really get out to the other side, or if the other side has no capacity to retaliate, um, these these are sort of standard arguments against consequentialist justifications for non-combatant immunity. If those consequences don't apply in any given situation then non-combatants have no protection and that's a worry. Um, The second incompleteness is normative. The argument lacks some important normative support specifically. um, It needs an additional kind of normative premise which is the idea that if if I kill someone who's liable and other people in some sense, what other people kill people who are non-liable, in some way as a response to what I'm doing, in some way it's going to be caused by what I do and that I'm responsible for their voluntary wrongdoing and I want to factor that into my assessment of my action and those consequences can override my right to protect myself in this circumstance. So this is a very sort of strong idea that, of responsibility for the wrongful agency of others. Um, And I'm, whatever its merits kind of intrinsically, it seems extremely, it seems greatly in tension with the revisionist view. Um, First of all, it's basically incorporating an extra moral reason. We're not really talking about an appeal to the law now, we're really talking about an appeal to consequences. And we're saying the fact that an act is intrinsically morally permissible isn't sufficient to determine that it's actually permissible for you to do it. We have to have regard to the consequences. And you can run the whole argument without any reference to the law at all. You can say, if I kill non-liable non-combatants now, that's going to lead to other people killing. Um, if I kill liable non now, that's going to lead to other people killing non-liable non-combatants in the future. Um, I'm responsible to some degree for for that that predictable wrongdoing on their part, so I ought not to protect myself in this case, even at the cost of my own life. Now there needs to be no reference to the law whatsoever in that. So the first thing is that this shows we've had some sort of serious misselling here. This is the argument that's doing the work. And this isn't in fact an appeal to law, it's an appeal to consequences, and what has been called the morality of war is really just a subset of the morally relevant reasons. Right, and this, these additional consequences reasons are playing a determining role. And that might have all sorts of um, implications and bleed across to other areas of the debate. Um, and there are other specific inconsistencies. Um, revisionists tend to be very dismissive of consequentialist speculation. And they generally place far more importance, far more emphasis on the importance of avoiding wrongdoing by oneself rather than preventing wrongdoing by others. Um, they are insistent on the paramount importance of individual rights. And I think this last point is particularly important. A combatant who can save his life by killing a liable non combatant has a right to do so on the liability view, the revisionist liability view. It's grounded in his right to life and which they elsewhere give such weight. And I don't think they can consistently demand that he forgo the exercise of this right and sacrifice himself because of speculations about the possible consequences of his actions for predictable wrongdoing by others. And in fact, this seems to be directly contradictory to the meta-ethical position that set up the appeal to law that other people's predictable voluntary wrongdoing should not affect what our moral reasons turn out to be. Now, if combatants never confronted situations where they can save lives or advance a just cause by harming non-combatants more than the laws of war allow, then this might be a purely theoretical worry. Um, unfortunately for the appeal of law, I don't think this is the case. In contemporary urban warfare, non-combatants contribute to threats to combatants without directly participating in hostilities. For example, by knowingly or unwittingly revealing their position to enemies, enemy combatants, or by concealing information about potential threats. Moreover, the law doesn't only prevent combatants from targeting liable U non combatants, it also demands that they minimise harm to non combatants that is incidental to attacking their military objectives. This imperative removes options that would reduce risks to J combatants in order to protect liable U non combatants. If the U non combatants are in fact liable to be killed, then like liable U-combatants, arms to them should not need to be minimized and J-combatants should be able to reduce their risks in these ways. Okay, so the point here is that if we do think that non-combatants are liable, then you can have an out-and-out policy of force protection because the point is you don't have to treat the civilians who are going to be killed collaterally as a, um, a regrettable cost, you treat them just in the same way as you treat liable enemy combatants. Okay, so even if there aren't many circumstances where you can gain a significant military advantage by directly targeting non-combatants, and there's some dispute on that. Uh, but even if there weren't those circumstances, I think it's fairly fairly obvious that um, we can save lives <coughs> of our own forces by imposing greater risks on, enemy non- on non-combatants on the enemy side. If we construe them as being liable to attack in the same way as enemy combatants are, then we have a much more, much uh, greater scope in which to do that. So this does have serious practical bite, this problem. Okay, the next section I'm gonna run through fairly briefly. Um, this is more of a kind of philosophical point about the structure of um, normative thinking that's proposed by the Appeal to Law. And the issue here really is that we'll distinguish, I think, between abstract principles and applied principles. And this is just a continuum, it's just a heuristic. Um, abstract principles are devised or defended in abstraction from other moral and non-moral facts. Uh, applied principles are developed by taking abstract principles, combining them with other moral principles, with other facts. Okay. And as they it continue, it's possible that all all principles are to some degree applied and to some degree abstract. Um, and you may sort of draw your line at various different points in terms of where you think you should go as far as how abstract you should get, how applied you should get. Okay. I think we can easily set up that continuum. What I think the appeal to law does is it, effect- it effectively elides the category of applied moral principles and inserts in its place the appeal to law. Right? So it says our normative guidance um, in practical circumstances, affected by the, um, the uncertainty and the political non-compliance that we get in the context of war, um, our normative resources are limited to appealing to the law and following the law. <coughs> Morality can only give us abstract <coughs> principles which can't be, which are, which are in effect irrelevant to these circumstances. Okay? So on this view it's perfectly feasible, it's perfectly reasonable to say, well in a war we ought only to kill the non-liable. Uh, as a matter of fact it turns out that we're never going to be able to do that. Um, but it's okay because we can just follow the laws of war because the laws of war are designed to deal with these sorts of practical problems whereas our abstract moral principles don't have to. Now what this elides is that whole area of applied moral principles. right? And It suggests that in those circumstances, in the context of, of war, um, we don't have available to us a question which I think we clearly do have available to us which is when the law prohibits or requires a given action, we can always ask, morally speaking, should I obey the law? There's always a further question to ask. Should I do what the law tells me to do? Is it morally right to do what the law tells me to do? There's always going to be this realm of applied moral principle um, distinct from the abstract principles that are formulated on the basis of artificial assumptions like full information. So I think that eliding that is a great mistake. And what's more, I think that even if you elide it explicitly, there's always an implicit applied account. Right? So, and I think that when we infer, we can infer an implicit applied morality of war from the revisionist view. And basically, it goes like this. There's two possibilities. On the first possibility, let's suppose that, um, as I think is the case, in any given conflict, many of the U combatants whom the J combatants will intentionally kill will not be liable to be killed. They will retain their rights to life. That's what I think is the case, not what, not what everyone thinks is the case. Well, this means we know in advance of fighting that we will intentionally kill non-liable people. We can't win without doing so. So it can only be justified for us to fight if there are other reasons that are going to override the reasons not to violate those rights. Okay. So we can, only be, <coughs> just, we can be justified to fight only if we have these other overriding reasons. Now, advocates of the revisionist view, with the possible exception of Cecil Fab, are very skeptical about the idea that we can justifiably override the rights to life, intentionally override people's rights to life. They think that um, these sort of lesser evil justifications are available only in extremely rare and unusual circumstances. Definitely not in every kind of ordinary walk. So this leads, leads us to a very strong conclusion, which is that we ought not to fight at all. Right? If we can't fight without killing non-liable people, and we know that we can't justify killing non-liable people, can't justify those intentional violations of rights, then we ought not to fight. Right? So in practice, the view does lead us directly towards pacifism. Um, that's the applied morality that you infer from these abstract moral principles. Now that's on the assumption that the U combatants, some of them will not be liable to be killed. Now what about if we drop that assumption? What if we suppose that magically we could produce this Goldilocks criterion of liability which was just right. So you've got just the combatants who you want to kill were liable and the non-combatants who you don't want to be able to kill are not going to be liable. So it's this perfectly, perfectly balanced criterion of liability. Suppose we had that. Well then, then you've still got a serious problem because as everybody agrees, in advance of any given conflict, there is always great uncertainty about whether you're justified in resorting to war. Okay, so this is, you know, the basic notion that you said, uh, in, circu- in the heat of the moment, you said is there's always somewhat uncertain, right? So there's always this doubt. Now consider how we should make our choices from this ex-ante perspective. If we turn out to be, if we turn out to lack you said justification, we turn out to be unjustified, then everybody we we kill on this view will will not be liable to be killed. We'll be murdering every single person who we kill in the context of this war. We'll be committing a spectacular wrongdoing, um, violating all of these rights intentionally. Now I think that even if there's a small possibility that we're in the wrong, the fact that the moral risk of doing so is so enormous, the moral risk of killing all these people unjustifiably in violation of their rights is so enormous that we would be forced again towards pacifism, towards not fighting, unless we're absolutely 100% certain that we're justifying and fighting. Right? And I think that in practice, again, there are going to be very few situations that are just that clear cut. Right? There's always going to be this possibility that you're in it wrong. And insofar as there's that possibility, the enormity of the wrong that you would commit should determine that you are on the side of caution. And in um, the title of a recent paper in philosophical studies, you should follow the maxim, don't know, don't kill. So again, I think that even if um, I'm wrong and all you combatants are liable to be killed, the uncertainty over whether we're on the justified (coughs) side, whether we're the J combatants, Is going to mean that we're still forced towards pacifism. So, what this means is that these abstract principles and the appeal to law conceal an applied morality that directs us toward, that directs us straight towards pacifism. Um, If we are unhappy with that conclusion, if we don't want to affirm pacifism, or if we think for other reasons pacifism is false, then we need to re examine the abstract principles that we started out from. We need to re examine the liability view. My, My thought on this is that we should. Reject their attitude to lesser evil justification. I think that we can justify intentionally violating rights more readily than they think we can. Um, but either way, whether you accept my inference from it or not, the fact that it leads, their view leads towards pacifism in this way um, either casts doubt on the abstract principles from which they start uh, or requires us to endorse pacifism. So that's my, my critique of the appeal to law and its function in defending the revisionist view. Um, I'm just going to conclude by talking a little bit about what I think the relationship between morality and law and war should be. Um, I'm just going to briefly consider a couple of other positions. Henry's and David Rodin's um, takes on this. Henry argues that the laws of war should track the morally best rules for war. Insofar as they don't, we should change them to remedy this. These rules, he thinks, and thought are quite different from the morally justified rules that govern ordinary life. Since war as a practice presupposes a level of violent contention with no parallels outside of war. If there are going to be rules for war, we are not simply to outlaw it altogether, these rules have to be quite different from the rules that apply to conduct in ordinary life. Uh, We can't and we perhaps ought not to eradicate the practice of warfare, so we should instead endorse rules that minimise the suffering that it causes. And Henry argues that these rules include the legal equality of combatants and the principle of non-combatant immunity, among the other constraints of use in Berlin. These exhaust the morality of war and its morality of conduct. Besides them, there's nothing else. This argument includes two important propositions. First, that the morally best laws for war should aim to minimise the suffering that war causes. And second, that these laws exhaust the morality of war. Now each of these claims on its own, is I a minimization and exhaustion on the handoff. Each of these claims on its own is quite controversial, but their conjunction is surely false. A new combatant who's fighting a war of territorial ingres- aggression, who realizes that he's fighting unjustifiably, should not continue to fight in accordance with the laws of and Bellow. If he realizes he's killing unjustifiably, he should stop. Um, the argument for the rules of war. Uh, taking the minimization of suffering as their aim presupposes the practice of war. Since we can't eradicate war, the argument goes, the best rules should seek to minimize its calamitous implications. But individuals aren't entitled to justify their own wrongdoing on the grounds that it is inevitable and so must be regulated rather than prescribed. We address the laws of war to people in the third person, and on Henry's account they run like this Since people will unjustifiably mm. fight, the moral imperative is to limit the damage that they do. If we formulate this argument in the first person, we can see it's, uh, how it can't exhaust the morality of war. Since I will unjustifiably fight, the moral imperative is to limit the damage I do. Right? So that, that obviously doesn't work. Uh, OK, so David Rodin agrees with Henry's second proposition, um, the exhaustion one, but he denies the first minimization. He argues instead that the morally best laws of war should be the precepts of his version of the liability view and that we should reject the traditional use in Bellow in favour of laws that permit combatants to kill only those who are liable to be killed. Uh, he has two objections to the minimisation proposition, uh, which is actually shared with, with Jeff, uh, with Marm. So the first is that it's based on unsubstantiated speculation about consequences, such as a general objection to consequentialism as a, as a method. Uh, the second that I'm going to look at more is that it wrongfully instrumentalises the rights of non-liable J combatants. And um, so it does this by saying that J-combatants, J because they fight justifiably, they're not liable to be killed. If we grant you combatants the right to kill them, we're endorsing their violation of those J-combatants' rights of life. Granting this right in order to minimize overall suffering amounts to treating their rights to life as a resource that we can sacrifice in the pursuit of better overall outcomes. And so he drives home the point with an example. Imagine a society in which an ethnic minority is victimised, culminating in the annual sacrifice of one member of the group. The authorities have tried to prevent the sacrifice, but in the years when they succeed, the minority suffers still worse abuse, including more murders. Should the authorities then legalise the annual sacrifice in order to minimise the suffering caused by this inner practice of minority victimisation? Now clearly the argument the example prompts some strong intuitions. Um, it would be a clearly unjustified law. And the analogy is superficially appropriate. Um, like I just said, there is a sense in which we're trading off the rights to life of non-liable Jacob combatants to ensure fewer rights violations overall. But I'm not sure whether the argument really goes through. I think we can see this if we consider the alternative proposed by Rodin. He wants to implement the liability view in the laws of war. And in doing so, he proposes a position of restricted asymmetry, that's what he calls it, and this denies any fighting rights to U-combatants, and it restricts J-combatants to targeting only enemy combatants. Now, setting aside the merits or flaws of this proposal as a matter of practice, the reasoning by which we get to it is mistaken, because it presupposes that all of those on the side that satisfy u such Benham, if there is one, are not liable to be killed, whereas all U-combatants are. And this assumption is untenable. Some J-combatants will be liable, some U-combatants will not. Endorsing simple asymmetry is going to instrumentalise the rights of non liable U combatants in order to grant J combatants the possibility of pursuing their cause. Again, if the laws of war are going to mirror the liability view, they can't be simply asymmetrical, they have to be completely individuated to the specific agent and to the specific act. And this would mean that the laws of war are either extraordinarily complex, specifying down to the minute detail which types of killing are permissible. Or they'd have to be um, inordinately vague, Um, simply saying, kill only the liable. In neither way would they be justiciable, they would have no critical purchase, it would be impossible to follow. So the only way to ensure compliance with laws like those would be, again, to endorse pacifism. Uh, And I think that leads us to the biggest analogy with the scapegoating example. If you outlaw the sacrifice, you're not preventing others from justifiably using force to defend things of real value. But if we implement the liability view in the laws of war, leading to essentially enforcing pacifism, then we are outlawing war. So if there are justified uses of force, then that's a serious problem. So both Rodin and Shue seek greater congruence between the laws and morality of war than seems viable. Henry allows predictable wrongdoing to great a role in determining war's morality, while Rodin's too indifferent to the epistemic difficulties of war and the, uh, the subtlety of his liability account. And he's too rigidly committed to respecting rights, even at the cost of endorsing pacifism. McMahon is surely right that laws as institutions have to take some forms of non-compliance as parametric in ways that our moral reasons should not. Um, The laws of war shouldn't track morality directly, either by bending our moral reasons to match the laws or by shaping the laws to exactly follow our moral reasons. But I do think that we should have greater congruence than McMahon um, affirms between the morality and laws of war. Specifically, I think that legal equality does sometimes reflect moral equality, and I think that there are principled foundations for non-combatant immunity. And more generally, I think that both the morality and the laws of use in Bello can be satisfied by both U-combatants and non-combatants, and, uh, J-combatants in principle. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'll just run through this quickly. Um, I mean, the idea for the legal equality of combatants is really grounded in that last point. I think that it is. Um, radically individuated as to determine as to whether you're justified in fighting. It can't simply be read off from the fact that your side satisfied you said better. Since I think that in fact you're only justified in fighting if um, the rights violations that you're com- going to commit are overridden by some other moral reasons, it's perfectly conceivable that that might happen um, for somebody who is on the unjust side of the war. So you might be defending only his comrades or defending only his um, non-combatant co-citizens and he might be justified in fighting in that context. So my point is that if if we were gonna have the law track morality exactly, it would have to be far too complex uh, and individuated for it to be practicable as a form of law. Um, So in that sense, we ought to have um, equality between these two things. Uh, If it was equal prohibition, then it would be ignored, it would just be out of law. So, you know, something like the current system does seem to be morally defensible. Although I would say that um, the current laws of war enshrine a right for combatants to fight. Um, they specifically say that the, the combatants, if, you, if you satisfy these various criteria, if you to qualify for combatant status, you do have a right to fight, which means a right to kill. And if you're on the unjust side, that means the law is enshrined a right to kill unjustifiably. And I think that's untenable, but I think it can be easily solved. We can decriminalize, um, we can have something that's decriminalized without granting a right to do it. Okay, So it can be impu- there can be impunity for fighting an unjust war without having to say that you have a right to do it, and okay? having to legally enshrine the right to kill unjustifiably. So specifically here I'm thinking of Articles 43 and 44 of the First Additional Protocol. Um, I mean the purpose of granting combatants that right to fight is to ensure they have impunity to ensure that they're not going to be punished if they're captured by the other side. And I think you can perfectly well strip the argument for impunity away from granting unjustified combatants a right to kill. Uh, so I think there's a combatant legal equality is partly grounded in moral principle and partly in practicality. Non-combatant immunity, I think it is grounded in moral principle. Um, in fact I think it's grounded in a multitude of overlapping moral arguments. The one that I'm focusing on most at the moment is the distinctive vulnerability of non-combatants. Um, but I'm going to just sort of skip over that I can talk about it more afterwards. Uh, I've got another <laughs> paper specifically on that topic. Um, so I think there are good grounds for having a, the principle of non-combatant immunity that aren't simply quenchless. My last thought is just that um, one of the reasons why the revisionists so often deny that the legal equality of combatants can have moral foundations is uh, stems out of their view that u combatants can't possibly satisfy use in bellow. They can't fight discriminately because discrimination requires killing only the liable, so they say, Um, nor can they satisfy criteria of necessity and proportionality and so on. Um, Now my thought on that is that they've interpreted the principles of use in bellow as specifying necessary and sufficient conditions for justified killing at war. Um, I think that's a mistake. I think that the criteria of use in bellow identify only necessary conditions of justified fighting. Um, and in that sense, whether you're a J-combatant or a U-combatant, you can satisfy these necessary conditions. That doesn't mean that you're justified in fighting, right? Um, that will depend on appeal to your, what you're actually, the purpose you're serving by fighting. Um, but the actual principles of use in bellow, um, being only necessary conditions, can be met and satisfied by both sides. Okay, so I've run out of time, and I'll leave it there. Um, i look forward to your, um, to your questions. Thank you.